On September the 9th, 2012, I sent a letter to the editor of the Portland Leader that said, my name is Chad Loveless. I believe I could be a vital, active, and staunch supporter of any religious group if I was convinced they were right. This is a challenge to the religious community. They believe their religious group is right. And if you can convince me, I'll make sure that me and my family of six join your religious group. This is not an empty promise, nor is it an attempt to berate or make fun or make enemies or fuss. I want anyone to come to me and explain why they believe the way they believe. I will be respectful and listen. I will be an active listener, which means I may ask questions, so be ready to give answers. But I will be gracious in that if I ask a question and they do not know the answer, I will allow them to get back to me with the answer at a later date. I only ask, ask that they do the same for me. Imagine converting a preacher in the Church of Christ to their religious group. I can be contacted by email, yada, yada. There were only two responses in all of Portland. One called me a crackhead, which I, when I talked with him later, he took it back. And one was a Seventh-day Adventist. Since then, many of us have had some major Bible studies with those of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. I enjoy talking with people who want to talk about the Bible, and I've made some friends in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. They have gone from people that I barely knew to people that I care about even deeper than before. I care about their soul, their eternity. And I believe they know that I do. They know, I believe, where I stand. With love, I try to tell them the truth. The man who contacted me, the Seventh-day Adventist man who contacted me, decided a few months ago that he wasn't going to change me and I wasn't going to change him. So we needed to end our discussions, which he felt were now a waste of time. I told him, I told him anytime we open the Bible, it's not a waste of time. And we left, I felt, as friends, and maybe more conversations will come down the road. But as the sole respondent to my letter, and he'll be listening to this, as the sole respondent to my letter to the editor, I have felt, to, felt the need to share why me and my family will not be joining the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. I was not born Seventh-day Adventist, but even so, there is so much contradiction within the denomination and their beliefs that knowing me as I do, I would have bailed on the denomination in my early adulthood. I struggled with a word that describes the members that I met of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. They are sincere. That's very true. But that's not the word. Uh, uh, intelligent, yes. 
very intelligent. But that's not the word either. Zealous, very zealous for their beliefs. But that's not the word either. I struggled with the word that was the undercurrent. And all of them that I talked to seemed to possess this. And I, I couldn't put my friend, I didn't have a word. I, 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 was, uh, I was ignorant of a word. And so I used a reverse dictionary in the, in the, in, on, online and I typed in what I thought the definition. Maybe I described what I was trying to, trying to come up with in this reverse dictionary. And it came out with words like syncretism. Came out with words like antagonistic contradiction. Came out with words like dialectic. And I'll explain those words as we, as we go along. Their views are not consistent. You understand their their views. You get from their views. You get mixed signals. When you talk about religious subjects, it seems like there's a waffling that goes on. Heretical syncretism is the official word that I came up with. The official phrase that I came up with. Uh, heretical that a departure from accepted belief or. or beliefs or, or standards, syncretism, the combination of different forms of belief or practice. In other words, they would believe this and they would believe the opposite of that and combine the two to where it was, I mean, you just really had to ask pointed questions to get to understand what they meant, where they were coming from. And that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to understand where they were coming from, not just... Not just try to beat them at their own game. That's not what my point was. It wasn't my point to, to, try, to, to try to browbeat them. It wasn't my point to try to... It, it was my point to try to understand the truth and get them to understand the truth. And my, my underlying cause was to tell them the gospel. That was my underlying cause. They believe ignorantly. And not... not, not not in the sense that they're stupid, it's that they don't understand they're doing that this, this heretical syncretism. They don't understand that they're ignorant about this. Double-tongued. They're holding to two opposing views at the same time. I input I, I all this to the computer and got heretical syncretism. Looking to the Bible for a definition was an exercise in bluntness. Here's Bible definitions for it. You want to know what they are? Bible is very blunt. False teachers, that's what Second Peter 2, troubling perverts, Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, deceiving antichrists, Second John 7, those are the Bible, blunt Bible definitions for what I was looking for. We, me and the Seventh-day Adventists tend to agree on how the world was made and who made it. But there are so many things that we disagree on and why I can't be an Adventist. Uh, nature of man, their belief on Daniel, their belief on Revelation, their belief on miracles, their belief on instrumental music in worship, uh, their belief in, in worship itself and the Lord's Supper in particular, uh, their belief in, uh, uh, in their organization uh, of the church, their elders. There were so many and I've got so much information that I had to narrow down the main reasons why I can't be an Adventist. Any one of these 
is a deal breaker. And I came up with four. And any one of these four is a deal breaker for me. But there's one that, that really is. If you want to know more about their history, I'm not going to burden you with that. If you want to know more about their history, if you want to more, know more about some of the things that I'm talking about tonight, if you want to know more about some other things about their doctrine, there's a great brotherhood website, www.bible.ca. Uh, this is the website homepage that you get to. If you see the little demon on the top left there, you click on him. Okay? When you click on him, this takes you to this page, uh, and you can click on all kinds of different uh, false doctrines. Uh, if you see the uh, tablets of stone at, at the top uh, left side there by the Pope, uh, Sabbath keepers refuted, you click on that, and it takes you to uh, uh, Sabbath keeping churches, uh, the white lies of Ellen G. White, uh, the uh, how Sabbatarians quit tw- twist the Bible, Ten Commandments abolished today, Sabbath nailed to the cross, uh, why the first day of the week. So you can, you can look to all those that, to your heart's content, okay? Um, but there was no way to break all this down uh, into one sermon. It would take me a lifetime of sermons to break down all the reasons why I can't be a Seventh-day Adventist. So I broke them down into four. The first reason I can't be a Seventh-day Adventist is because of their view on the Ten Commandments. It's just so inconsistent. It's just so inconsistent. The Seventh-day Adventists say that the law of Moses was nailed to the cross. The law of Moses was nailed to the cross. They are ceremonial laws. The law of Moses are. But the Ten Commandments, they were written in stone, and they're the law of God... And they're still in effect. Yet they break the fourth commandment law every Saturday. It says in Exodus chapter 16 verse 29, Let every man remain in his place on the Sabbath day. There's not supposed to be any traveling. In fact, there's only a certain distance that you can travel. And the majority of Adventists on every Sabbath day travel farther than that. Exodus 31, verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses the Sabbath law. So to say that uh, the the law of Moses and the law of God and try to differentiate between the two, you can't. Because God gave Moses the laws. Yes, they're the law of Moses, but they're also the law of God. Exodus 31, verse 15, you can do no work on the Sabbath. And a lot of them, they're very sincere, and they try to work their schedules around. And, and, and Brother Billy Joe, he and I were talking about this the other day, I mean, excuse me, earlier today about how even we here, we should, you know, want to come to church more than we should work, you know, and we should be teaching our children that as well. And they do. They try to teach their children that, and they try not to get jobs where they have to work on Saturday, but some of them have to. But you know what happened to the Jews when they worked on Saturday? They were stoned to death. And we don't see any of that happening today. Seventh-day Adventists say that everything in the Bible that says law of Moses, that's nailed to the cross. But everything that says law of God, well, that's the Ten Commandments. I want you to notice, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. I want you to understand 
what Nehemiah is saying here. We're going to look through the Bible at some passages. and This is where, to me, the rubber meets the road and why I can't be a, an Adventist. It's because of their view of the law of Moses, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Of course, Nehemiah and the children of Israel had come back to Jerusalem after being uh, captives for so long. The book of the law of Moses, chapter 8, verse 1. The book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Now notice, the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel, it contained two copies of the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 2. It's called the law. Look at verse 3. It's called the book of the law. Look at verse 7. It's it's called the law. Look at verse 8. It's called the law of God. Same book. Same book they're talking about. In verse 13, it's called the law of the Lord commanded by Moses. In in, In verse 18, it's called the book of the law. All referring to the same thing. Look over at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13. Nehemiah writes of God, You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded the precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. According to Nehemiah and so many other verses that I just can't put them up on the screen. The law is the law, and it includes the Ten Commandments. Romans chapter 7 says, in a nutshell, we are free from the law. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11 say, in a nutshell, the new covenant is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Verse 11 says, for if what is passing away was glorious... What remains is much more glorious. Turn and mark Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 is where we're going to begin. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who has made both one, And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That's the active ill will, the enmity that is the law of commandments. Contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death... The enmity. What's the enmity? Well, the enmity is the law. All of the law. Ten Commandments is is included there. The law is the law is the law. (laughs) Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. The law, it says, all of it. The the law was our tutor. Y'all know what a tutor is. Some of us have had to have our students have tutors. Some of you may have been a tutor to someone. You're trying to instruct them on something. Have a little deeper and better understanding of math or English, right? Well, the law, all of it, was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith, there's no need for a tutor. 
All of chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, all of chapter 4 tells us that we're not under the bondwoman, we're under the free woman. We're not under the old law, we're under the law of Jesus Christ now. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, the handwriting of requirements has been wiped out. It's been wiped out. It's been nailed to the cross, all of it. Even tithing, tithing's been nailed to the cross too. And that's not part of the Ten Commandments, yet Adventists require it of their members. Eating pork, the Jews couldn't eat pork. And it's not part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of what the Adventists say is nailed to the cross, yet they require They're members not to eat pork. I don't care if you like pork or not. It doesn't matter to me whether you like pork or not. But you can't take one thing and say it's nailed to the cross except for these parts. It's just inconsistent. Inconsistency. I can't be a Seventh-day Adventist because of their view of the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament as a whole. I can't be a Seventh-day Adventist because of their view of life after death and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every conversation that I've had with an Adventist has started here at some point. That when you die, you're dead. There's no life after death until Jesus comes back and then there will be no eternal punishment. And mixed in with all this are, are three resurrections. There are three different resurrections according to the Seventh-day Adventists. Some are like this graph, and there are more, more or less two resurrections uh, extra. But uh, the majority believe prior to Christ coming back, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, and there's going to be a battle of Armageddon. Okay? And that after that, there's going to be a thousand-year reign, and the good dead are going to be raised. All right? And then after the thousand-year reign, the wicked dead are going to be raised and they're going to be judged. And there's going to be another battle, but it's different from the battle of Armageddon. And they're going to be destroyed for good, annihilated. There's an intricate, woven, practiced story used which includes Daniel. I can't explain it to you all now. I mean, if you'd like to come one-on-one with me, I'd love to. But it includes Daniel, it includes Revelation, it includes 1844. And the investigative judgment, which sounds big, but it's, it's, it's not in the Bible, investigative judgment of Ellen G. White. But it's all rehearsed. The story is full of heretical syncretism. <laughs> That's my big word for it. Antagonistic contradiction. It's very dialectic. Hey, I've got big words too. But basically, the view of the afterlife is just false. That's the, that's the easy way to say it. It's just false. We understand false, don't we? Here's why. According to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, when we die, our bodies are buried. But our spirit goes to Hades. Hades is divided into three parts. Paradise, torment, and a great gulf that can't be crossed. 
It's separating the two. The wicked are in torment. The righteous are in paradise. Jesus told the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't go to heaven yet. That happens in Acts chapter 1. Because it says in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus told the woman Jesus had not yet ascended to his father. Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 says in Acts chapter 2 verses 29 through 35 of Jesus that his soul was not left in Hades, which includes paradise. But after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of God. Acts chapter 1 shows that where Jesus goes into a cloud, which refutes the 1844 investigative judgment, false Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. I know that's a mouthful, but it's not in the Bible. Which states, and is confirmed by their prophetess, Ellen G. White, that it was not until 1844 that Jesus stood in the Holy of Holies. Beside God. He didn't do that until 1844. False teaching. Heretical syncretism, smoke and mirrors, mixed signals, marks of the Antichrist is what they are. Direct Bible teaching from Jesus on everlasting punishment are ignored or they're brushed aside. If you can, turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 8. Follow along with me. Try to. Try to stay up with me. I've just written these down. Dana hates it when I go fast through stuff, so I'm going to slow down and let you catch up to me as we go through these, all right? I want you to see them for yourself. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12 speaks, and these are ignored. These, these, these particular passages are ignored or they're brushed aside by Seventh-day Adventists. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12 speaks of outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth in describing hell. Matthew chapter 13, verse 42. There's going to be a furnace of fire and there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 22, verse 13. Speaks of outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, verse 51. Look at that one. Again, some more wailing and gnashing of teeth. More weeping. Matthew 25, verse 30, there's more gnashing. Matthew 25, verse 41, here's some everlasting fire for you. Not prepared for you, this everlasting fire, but prepared for the devil and his angels and those on the left hand. Everlasting fire. Matthew 25, verse 46, those will go away into everlasting fire. Punishment. Turn over a few pages to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark this one. Mark this one. Mark chapter 9 verse 48. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. One day, like the angel said in Acts chapter 1 verse 11, Jesus went up into a cloud and he will... Come back in the same way. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. Like labor pains on a pregnant woman, Jesus will come back quickly like a thief in the night. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Jesus will come back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. There are no scriptural bases for a, a seven year or a thousand year or tribulation or any more than one more second coming. I can't be a Seventh-day Adventist because of their views on the afterlife and the second coming of Jesus Christ. But I also can't be a Seventh-day Adventist because of their view on prophecy today. In fact, they believe all spiritual gifts, all the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are active today. Here's what the official creed of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination says. This is part number 18. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church and was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. As the Lord's messenger, her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Do you see the, the speaking out of two faces, two mouths in their face? Do you, do you see that, the double speak? Do you see, at the very last, the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. But notice, her writings are continuing and authoritative. Do you see? Just like the scriptures are. Which one is it then? I have in my collection, I've got a stack of things back here that I've collected over these months. I have a Sabbath school Bible study guide. It has 112 pages in it, a little thin study guide that they use in their Sabbath school. Me and Sammy and James and Matt, we've, we've been to their Sabbath school and sat there. A quarter of it, one quarter of that little book of those 112 pages is dedicated to the writing of Ellen G. White. When I've talked with Adventists, it's almost like, Ellen who? Do you see? I mean, you, you get this. I mean, you get so much. She's, she's a quarter of what they study each Sunday, each Saturday. She's a quarter of their study guide, and yet they, they turn around and look at you like, who are you talking about? Ellen G. Who? This is from Bible.ca. Younger, newer, recently converted Seventh-day Adventists often notify us by email saying that we at the Interactive Bible website have misrepresented the official position of the Seventh-day Adventist church regarding Ellen White's inspiration. They are in fact being deceived by their own church. The truth is that this is still the official position but they are sending out mixed signals. They're not the only one who's seen this. I've seen it as well firsthand. Prior to 1980, when news of White's plagiarism was first published by Walter Reed, she had written a book called The Great Controversy, and 90% of it was plagiarized. She accepted every bit of it as her own, but they've proven that 90% of it was from someone else's writings. 
since prior to 1980, all Adventists viewed White as an inspired prophet. However, now that is that is an absolute proven fact that White plagiarized 80 to 90 percent of her inspired writings, including almost all of her visions. Modern Seventh Day Adventist leaders are quickly watering down the church's historic stand on White's inspiration. The current Official is actually identical to what it's always been, as you will see below in the 1997 baptismal vows and church doctrines. But they are now making statements like, White's writings are not a replacement of the Bible. Our standard for doctrine is the Bible only. But her writings are still, as you saw, and that was from the 2010 vows, her writings are still a continuing authority for Christians today. They go on. Such statements are lies, deception, and radical departure from both the current official position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the historical foundation of the very denomination itself. Do not be deceived, new converts. Such changes are also occurring in the Mormon church who are watering down the long-standing claims of Joseph Smith's inspired translation of the Book of Mormon and the Jehovah's Witnesses' hundred-year-old claim that the Watchtower magazine is inspired. There's even a prophet test. It's a prophet test. That Ellen G. White passed, but no one else of note has seemed to do so, even though the gift is supposed to be relevant today. Prophecy is supposed to be a relevant gift today. They had some new ones, some new guys like this guy by the name of Mark Baralt, but because he was of the shepherd's rod, and ask me that one of your own risk, okay, if you want the Reader's Digest version or the, or the long version, I'll give it to you. Uh, He was not even considered because he didn't pass this prophet test. Even though he said he was a prophet in the Seventh-day Adventist church, they didn't accept him because he didn't pass the prophet test. All right? There are 12 tests in the Seventh-day Adventist prophet test. And they say that Ellen G. White, she passed all of them. I'm just going to deal with three of them just for a minute. And I want you to know that all these 12 are taken out of context to prove that Ellen G. White or anyone could be a prophet of God today. But time will not allow me to go through each one. Test number one comes from Deuteronomy, you can see on the screen here, Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, which basically says if a prophet prophesies and what they say doesn't come to pass, they're not a prophet. Okay, we got that. I'll accept that one, won't you? Test number two. Numbers, of course, we're not under the Old Testament anymore, so it really doesn't matter. Test number two Numbers 12, 6, prophets are spoken, are, are spoken to in dreams and visions. Okay, Ellen G. White, she claims dreams and visions from God. And let's look at one of her, her prophecies, okay? Let's look at one of them. This is one of her major prophecies, okay? This is the big one, all right? Now remember, what was it? They, 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 what they said had to come true and that they were going to be spoken to in dreams and visions. All right, here we go. In Life Sketches of Ellen G. White, as published by the Adventist, we have this language relating Mrs. White's vision of the Sabbath day. Elder Bates was resting upon Saturday, the seventh day of the week, and he urged it upon our attention as the true Sabbath. I did not feel its importance, and though he erred in dwelling upon the fourth commandment 
and thought he erred in dwelling upon the fourth commandment more than upon the other nine. But the Lord gave me a view of the heavenly sanctuary. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and I was shown the ark of God covered with the mercy seat. Two angels stood over, one at either end of the ark with their wings spread over the mercy seat, and their faces turned toward it. This, my accompanying angel informed me, represented all the heavenly hosts looking with reverential awe toward the law of God, which had been written by the finger of God. Jesus raised the cover of the ark, and I beheld the tables of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written. I was amazed as I saw the fourth commandment in the very center of the ten precepts with a soft halo of light encircling it. Said the angel, it is the only one of the ten which defines the living God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that are therein. She continues in another, in another instance, proclaiming and exclaiming the same, the same prophecy. Mrs. Ellen G. White says, In the ark was the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of stone which folded together like a book. Jesus opened them, and I saw the Ten Commandments written on them with the finger of God. On one table were four, and on the other six. The four on the first table shone brighter than the other six, but the fourth, the Sabbath commandment, shone above them all, for the Sabbath was set apart to be kept in honor of God's holy name. The holy Sabbath looked gloriosia, halo of glory. A a, a, a halo of glory was all around it, I'll put it that way. Remember the first test, right? Why is it that this major prophecy of Ellen G. White will never be able to be confirmed. How are you going to confirm this? I mean, if you told me, Chad, when you walk out of here, you're going to be hit by a yellow school bus that's traveling at exactly 32 miles an hour as you open up the the mailbox out there. And if that happened, we would probably say, man, that guy was right. He must be a prophet. Because you could confirm it. The guy could say, I was going 32 miles an hour. It's a yellow school bus. I'm standing out by the, by the, by the mailbox and I'm dead. But how can you confirm this? Because it's not a prophecy. It's a doctrine change. It's not a prophecy. It's a doctrinal change. Test number five is from Daniel. This one really gets me. It's from Daniel chapter 10, verse 18. And it's totally out of context in what's happening in Daniel. Seventh-day Adventists say a prophet will have unreal strength when they're prophesying. That first they'll get, earlier in Daniel, they, they first get very weak. But here they get very strong. Okay? Well, what was happening in Daniel was Daniel had gone without food. He was weak and an angel came and made him strong. That's the context of Daniel. But during one of her visions, Ellen G. White, Ellen G. White held this 18-pound Bible out in front of her for 30 minutes while she prophesied. So that means she, she, she passed the strength test of the prophet test. It reminds me of the Catholics documenting miracles to make folks saints, doesn't it? Or it reminds me of Mormons proving the book of, trying to prove the book of Mormon. This is different from the Bible. Mrs. White 
should have read her Bible instead of many of these visions. It says, because it says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, even if an angel from heaven tells you to preach another gospel, let him be accursed. She was approached by an angel. She's preaching something different than what the New Testament says, and she should not have listened to that angel, and that angel will be accursed if it truly was an angel that came to her in a vision. He will be accursed. He preached something different. The passing on the spiritual gifts was only available, the passing on of the spiritual gifts was only available to the apostles. Many of her contemporaries and historians, have, they've written of her sick mind that she had. But Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which was in you through the laying on of my hands. That's how Timothy got his spiritual gifts because Paul laid his hands on Timothy. We don't have any apostles that can do that today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapters 12 through 14, they go in depth on the spiritual gifts of the first century Christians. The purpose of which, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, oh, I've got a different verse there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 22 was to confirm the message preached. Here in chapter 13, it says that prophecy will fail, tongues will cease, and knowledge will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. The in part are the spiritual gifts. The perfect for Christians is the New Testament. Jude 3, we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Seventh-day Adventists are way out of the truth of the Bible on prophecy. Partly to do with Ellen G. White partly to do with their view of Revelation, partly to do with their view of Daniel. But I can't be a Seventh-day Adventist because of their view of prophecy and because of their prophetess, Ellen G. White. But I could have, I could have left all these out and saved you all a lot of trouble tonight. I could have let you all go away early. I could have saved you all a lot of trouble because there's just one more reason one more point. It's the last reason why I can't be a, a Seventh-day Adventist. And it's because of their view on salvation. Seventh-day Adventists believe that faith alone saves, like many of the denominations in our country. Baptism, according to them, is a public expression of both faith in Christ and forgiveness of sins. Now that sounds nice, Till you break it down. With a Seventh-day Adventist, you have to ask the pointed question. You have to get down to the meat of it. You have to ask, do you have to be baptized? And guess what they'll say? Yes. But you've got to get more pointed than that. You've got to ask them, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And they'll say, well, no. There's a huge difference. Heretical syncretism, troubling perverts, Galatians, Galatians 1 verse 6, deceiving Antichrist, 2 John 7. The Seventh-day Adventist doctrine of salvation is dangerous. According to one honest Seventh-day Adventist, before you can be baptized, you've got to be voted in. Where's that in the Scriptures? 
according to the Seventh-day Adventist Creed. This is from their creed, from a PDF of the 2010 church manual. There are, thir- these are, there are 13 vows that you must make before you can be a Seventh-day Adventist. I strongly disagree with six of the 13, but the kicker is shown up here. The kicker shown here is a view of salvation in, in number three. And it says, I renounce the world and its sinful ways. And I have accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I believe that God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven my sins and has given me a new heart. Notice, this is said before baptism. This is said before baptism. According to the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, sins are forgiven before baptism. But the Bible says people are lost. They're sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And they're without hope. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. But God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, John three sixteen. And when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and, res- death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith increases by hearing God's word, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And we believe in Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 24. And repent of our sins, Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. And confess Christ before others, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And we're baptized ties into Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we are in Christ, Acts chapter 3, verse 26.